have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077TheBronc.com. Live from the Killarney's Public House Studios, welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. Today in the studio, we have our producer, Diamond McNellis and Antonia Conti, who are our co-producer, and we are going to be talking about psychopathology with an emphasis on psychopaths and sociopaths <laughs> hi diamond hi <laughs> and so when we talk about psychopathology in this context we are basically talking about emotional processing so a little bit of what we're going to talk about today is how the nervous system of humans processes emotional information um, which is something that it's sort of a characteristic of humans, irrespective of cultures. We have happiness, sadness, fear, anger, disgust. And um, psychologists over years have figured out this sort of host of human emotions. But within that umbrella, there's a lot of things about humans that sometimes they don't process that information, what we would call in a normal fashion. Mm -hmm. And there are certain conditions that are produced. The DSM-5, the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, here in the United States, classifies some of these things as antisocial personality disorders, of which sociopathy and psychopathy are included. Yes. Correct. <laughs> and you wanted to talk about these things, Diamond, some of their similarities and their differences. Yeah, I just find them very interesting. Um, one of those people that enjoys serial killer documentaries and f listening and reading about things like that. It's just interesting to me. Okay. Um, and, and that's one thing that we will we, we, we can touch on if you'd like, because there certainly is a very large um, literature mm -hmm. and a lot of movies yes. that, <laughs> that portray people who are presented as sociopaths and, and, and psychopaths. And they, they're different things. They're not, they're not the same thing. And yes. they, they are often confused. And in our conversation today, some of the things that we're going to talk about are some of the similarities and differences between those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what you're echoing is, I mean, you're, you're, you're interested in that stuff. I think one reason there are so many books and movies about people who not only do but have unusual emotional responses is because a lot of people are fascinated by them and they want to see them um, and they want to understand it which is why it's a genre that people engage in because in the end that people make movies and write books often mm -hmm. to, to make money yes <laughs> and, and so people vote with, with going to see these things so what kind of things would, you know, are on your, on your mind when you think about sort of, uh, you know, uh, sociopaths and um, psychopaths? Well, do you, do you consider them one of the same thing or do you see differences? I feel like they're terms that 
are used interchangeably, but I know there are some differences between the two. So I know for psychopaths, they're antisocial, they lack empathy and remorse, and they typically have egotistical traits, while sociopaths lack a conscience and disregard for others, and they're often impulsive. Yeah, some of those things are the same. Yeah. The DSM-5, like I mentioned before, characterizes them both as antisocial personality disorders and and, uh, and I believe doesn't even use the, those those different words mm-hmm. in in the sense they are sort of related in that way and they're sort of a both of them are sort of um, think of a two distribute think of a distribution of a normal what a normal human is it's sort of a yeah. bell-shaped curve a symmetric distribution some people are going to process emotional information a little bit differently and that's going to sh- that distribution is going to be a small distribution but it's going to have a large overlap with what is normal humanness and then within that there's going to be two other curves and one of them could be the curve of the psychopath and one of them could be the curve of the sociopath and the difference is um, in a nutshell uh, probably come from behaviorally there's going to be a lot of overlap between those two things Mm -hmm. and I think the current thinking is that um, sociopaths are something that is, is a learned sort of behavior. People learn to behave in certain ways. And people who have true psychopathology are people who are born um, with certain sort of characteristics or have accidents that happen to them to change their brain. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, all behavior is based on nervous system activity. Yes. So if people are going to behave in ways that are characterized as aberrant in some way, there has to be something going on in their nervous system. And we certainly were going to talk about in that today mm-hmm. in things, but tell, tell me a little bit more about some of the things that you come at this sort of thing looking at as a, as a biology major here at Ryder University. Well, I know by taking one of your classes, the function of the nervous system. Okay, okay so let, we'll start there. The job of the nervous system is to create ultimately appropriate behavior based mm-hmm. on the environment in which you work in. And then we have, in order for it to just generate behavior, what's happening on the inside of us has to be coordinated with that behavior. So if you're going to run, the running has to be in, has to be associated with an increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure, glucose mo- mobilization, and so the, your, your nervous system's job in order to create that appropriate behavior is to take in sensory information, integrate that with what's happening in your physiology inside you, and produce appropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. And sometimes behavior is movement, and and like running would be a great example of that. But sometimes um, behavior involves an emotional component. And when we talk about these sort of things, um, these antisocial personality disorders, a lot of them have to do with emotional processing. So, so I, I will, I'm going to try to lead you on a journey a little bit. Okay. And let's, let's begin our journey because ultimately we want to come back to sociopathology and psychopathology and mm-hmm. the similarities and differences. And let's begin with talking about sort of emotional processing. Okay. You want to, you want to do that? that? That work for you? Yeah, that works. Diamond, that work? Antonia, that work? Okay, excellent. So uh, let's begin by just sort of saying, historically, people have known that humans have emotions for as long as they've been humans. Mm -hmm. And there's a historical debate that says, does the human nervous system generate a physiological response, sweating, heart rate, breathing, and then your brain interprets that as an emotion? 
Or does your nervous system create sort of those outputs and therefore, and, and that's how what an emotion is. So it's sort of a, a historically, uh, back when I was a student, like you guys, people, we used to be asked questions like compare and contrast the James Bard and the, um, the, can, I mean, the Cannon Bard or the James Lang theory of you know, emotional origins. Um, the answer is it's sort of both. Mm-hmm. You have, you don't feel sad because you're crying. And an example of that might be, you know, if you're cutting an onion and your tears start to happen, yeah. you don't feel sad. I mean, some no. people actually start to laugh at themselves <laughs> yeah. when they're doing like, oh my God, like why was I like, you know, hovering my head over the cutting board? And then you're sort of laughing even though you're crying. Mm-hmm. So that's so the, the, the sort of the James Lang historical way of looking at it is, well, you feel sad because you're crying. Um, or the, the evidence for that is sort of people who have spinal cord injuries and you show them emotional, either happy or sad movies. They show less intense emotional responses to comedies or sad movies than people who have intact spinal cords. And that's, that's sort of consistent with that idea is that you monitor your periphery and you generate an emotion. The other way of looking at it was the idea was that um, you know ex- the experiences or- originate in the nervous system, the emotions, and that drives the physiological response. And that was historically called the Cannon-Barr theory. And, but both of those were sort of competing for a lot of years. We now know the real answer is sort of a combination of those two things. And we know that there are areas of the brain that sort of control these things. Not There's no like emotional center in the brain. Um, about 80 or 90 years ago, uh, somebody, a uh, physician proposed something that became known as the Pepez circuit, which was an interconnection of, of brain areas um, that involved like the hippocampus, the thalamus, the cingulate gyrus. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, a lot of things historically have been added to what used to be called the Pepez circuit. Um, and we now no, no longer use the word Pepez circuit. We use the word the limbic system okay. of brain structures. Now, limbic comes from the Latin term for border because you have a brain stem which is part of your brain Mm -hmm. and these are structures that tend to surround collectively they border sort of the brain stem and they're collectively known as the limbic system that are very very important for emotional processing and these include things like the cingulate gyrus um, your thalamus um, the mammillary bodies the hypothalamus the nucleus accumbens parts of your brain stem the hippocampus and most importantly an area that wasn't even part of the original proposal of the press circuit, an area of your brain called the amygdala, which yes. in Latin actually means almond, like yeah. so because it's shaped um, like an almond. And we now know that that almond, the amygdala, is an important part of emotional center. It's not the emotional center of the brain. There is no concrete emotional center. Emotions are generated um, by uh, all these sort of areas of the brain interacting with each other, and we will follow that up. This this uh, this lesson in anatomy right after these um, brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 107.7 TheBronx.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077TheBronx.com. Live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. 
We're in the studio talking about the neuroanatomical processes of emotional processing in the human nervous system. And we were sort of talking about this, these connection of circuits that are collectively called the, the limbic system that have sort of replaced the idea of a, of a propez circuit. But these limbic structures collectively are involved with emotional processing. And the amygdala is a, an important part of that. Right? And so what happens is through these interconnected anatomical terms, the amygdala will drive neuroendocrine responses, autonomic responses, and ultimately behavior. And it does that through connections to the, hy the hypothalamus, um, the cerebral cortex, there's bidirectional communication there, and some of the areas like the periaqueductal gray of the brainstem to sort of influence behavior sort of things. Now, what happens in a normal individual? Information comes in from the environment, these structures in association with the, you know, the cortex, the prefrontal cortex and involves learning and memory, all these things, generates appropriate emotional responses. And there are appropriate emotional responses, like we mentioned, fear, anger, disgust, and people interpret those things as, you know, as love or hate mm -hmm. and all these sort of things. Um, empathy is something that comes out of that. Um, and some people think the ability to have empathy is a unique thing to primate especially in the humans and it's what I used to call in class the curse of the forebrain Yeah, because <laughs> a lot of these structures embryologically come from the development of the forebrain and it's, it's, they're sort of normal right for us to care and empathize and feel have feelings for people and, and it, there's all these sort of things that are coordinated now what happens in these conditions that you're interested in like you know psycho we call, we call you know psychopaths yeah and, and and now if we talked about psychopaths is that a good thing or a bad thing how do you how do you approach this i think pop culture wants you to think it's a bad thing so but tell me tell me more so anyone who in a movie or pop culture or anything like that if they're a psychopath they're usually portrayed as evil or killing people can't help but follow their impulses things like that mm -hmm. but I think in the real world there are interventions and everything's yeah. not so cut and dry. Well, well, let's let's take let's take a step back. Um, psychopaths, I've seen estimates that are, you know in the reality are relatively rare. There's some I've seen estimates from 0.6 to maybe as much as you know a few maybe two or three maybe four percent of the population. And remember, it's a continuum. Those extreme examples that are exaggerated in the movies. Some of those people. Um, have what's sort of called uh, fearless dominance. Mm -hmm. They're not afraid. They tend to be dominant. They do what they want without really caring. They tend to be self-centered and very, very impulsive. And they also have low sort of autonomic arousal. They can do things yes. without their heart rate and blood pressure sort of going up. And those mm -hmm. are sort of the, the traits of a psychopath in the movie, right? Who does like, usually like you nailed it, evil things. Yes. Right. Um, and I'm going to put forward an idea for you and we and, and related to, we come, we're going to come back to the brain function thing because people have studied, but those sort of constellation of behavioral characteristics I mean they are associated with just as we say smaller prefrontal cortex that's part of the brain mm -hmm. um, less reactive amygdala in response to emotional information but they're portrayed in the media as sometimes evil people 
However, there are aspects in certain careers and certain paths where those behavioral characteristics will actually lead to success. Um, you might imagine somebody who is, you know, a, a stock market kind of person leading a company. If they can be ruthless and fearless, <laughs> right, and be calm under pressure yes. and not care about, not empathize with the people they're marching over or firing, mm-hmm. that might be a psychopath in a success. Those traits might lead to some set success and not necessarily dysfunction. Yes. You might imagine politicians uh, <laughs> under the same thing who have that constellation a uh, uh, behavioral constellation who again might lead to a lot of success i can also imagine leaders in war conditions or warriors you know if you're a leader and you are you know feeling bad for the soldiers that you're going to send off into battle because you know a lot of them are going to die and their families are going to be impacted and then you're not going to be a very good leader under those kinds of conditions. You almost have to not care. Yeah. Right? You have to have not that empathy. And you want to have that sort of that fearless dominance, that ruth being, you know, um, you know, confidence, fearless, uh, that kind of stuff. So if someone were to have, like, those types of traits, that doesn't automatically qualify them, though, to be, like... A psychopath or a sociopath? No, it's an, no, so absolutely it's like a not. Whole slew of it's it's a constellation right. of behaviors, and remember, these are parts part of being humanness. We all have aspects of times where we can turn these things on, turn them off. It's if you have an extended pattern over a lot of different things, like being impulsive and assertive can be good. Right, and what many of us can do that. Okay, so Being you need to have like a sort of balance. Yeah, a balance. Being charming. Yeah. Um, you know, can sometimes be good. Sometimes these people have like multiple husbands or wives because they can be very, very charming, mm-hmm. and they can be. They I mean they they can be very, very convincing. They can be very believable in in the kind of stuff they're saying. They tend to be very, very self-centered, and and within the human condition, some of these people are very bright, but there's some of them that are not so bright. Um, the brighter ones with good education might end up being, you know, on Wall Street, heads of these, you know, multinational corporations or whatever the hell they do, right? <laughs> Not, it doesn't necessarily mean violence, right? There are violent people and there are nonviolent people, part of the nor- normal human condition. There are bright people and not so bright people. And depending where you are and how you express these traits, um, you're sort of on a spectrum of what it means to be, to be human. Um, and, and, and we can all relate to that. Uh, for example, I've heard it said that you know, a very psychopathic saying or advertisement is the uh, shoe and clothing company that has a slogan that says, you know, just do it, right? Don't think about it. Don't reflect on it. Don't worry about what it's going to fact have on others, right? Just do it. Just do it, <laughs> right? That's a very psychopathic sort of way of approaching the world. You're not thinking about the impact on other people. Yeah. You're, just, you're just doing it and you're being impulsive. And um, you might imagine under certain conditions, that could be a very positive thing. However, you nailed it when you said, how are those psychopathic tendencies often portrayed in literature and in the arts? 
as evil. As evil. Yeah. Right. And like I said, there are people with those tendencies, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You've heard me say many, many times. There's people whose brains, like I mentioned before, have um, people have found out smaller prefrontal cortex, which Mm -hmm. is sort of the emotional reasoning judgment part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And they have less reactive amygdalas in response to potentially emotional information. And I also found reduced hippocampus volumes and stuff like that. Yeah. So the brain changes reflect on the behaviors. Now, where do those brain changes come from? Some of them are going to be, you're born that way. Your genes, your brain is put together. There's also going to be some, there's going to be an environmental component because your environment can often influence how your brain is put together during development. There can also be like situational psychopathology, psychopaths. And one of the most famous that almost every psychology or neuroscience class talks about is Phineas P. Gage. Yep. Right? And what do you remember about Phineas P. Gage? So he was working on something and a rod went through his railroad workers yeah his 1848 or what his prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. and his personality shifted dramatically and became and developed psychopathetic traits yeah so he went from being a calm nice friendly guy with a sense of humor to a guy who became impulsive Mm -hmm. couldn't hold down a job said things without really thinking about the consequences like you know i mean the the joke that i make in class is you know if your boss has a really fat wife that you meet (laughs) You don't say, hey, your wife's really, really fat, (laughs) right? You know, and so he lost the ability to control those kinds of behaviors in appropriate circumstances. So he had an environmentally induced kind of psychopathology where it induced that. And in today's world, you might imagine some people who are using drugs that change change one's brain drugs that will change these limbic structures emotional processing and many of us who know people who've been drinking drugs for long periods of time their ability to process motion emotions does change Mm -hmm. and sometimes that theoretically lead to sort of psychopathological kinds of traits okay excellent question um unfortunately we need to take a quick break we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these underwriting announcements you're listening to health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 healthcare The to the Bronx environment Bronx. around us and everything in between. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We're in the studio today with Diamond McNellis and Antonia Conti, our co-producers, and we are talking about emotional processing in the human nervous system with an emphasis on uh, uh, psychopathology um, and psychopaths as they're portrayed in both uh, literature and in the movies, and we're talking a little bit about how one's brain might be different in those sort of people um so i do have a question for one part of the brain that we didn't talk about in the earlier segments that in this paper i was reading it mentioned that there were discrepancies in the corpus callosum Mm -hmm. in between different patients that they did brain scans on i was wondering if you knew anything about that in this context well um yeah let's talk about the corpus callosum in general for people who might not know what that is the corpus callosum is a band of white matter Mm -hmm. so it's it's 
connections. It's fibers that are connecting the two halves of the human brain. There are several regions of the brain that connect to two hemispheres. The corpus callosum is the largest. The corpus callosum is sort of right in the middle of the brain that connects the two, two sides. It's actually a sexually dimorphic region of the nervous system. So the corpus callosum in females tends to be thicker and less bulbous. The corpus callosum of males tend to be a little more narrow in the middle and has more bulbs on the end. And the idea is what that structure, that's the anatomy of it. What the structure does in terms of function is it sort of provides access for the two sides of the brain to send information back and forth. So it being white matter means it's axons. Mm -hmm. So it's a sharing between the left side and the right side of the brain. Um, that becomes important because the areas that we have talked about, whether they're the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, the cingulate gyrus, the thalamus, all these areas exist on both the left and the right side of the brain, and they there's communication between the, the two sides. So what did you find in some of the things that you were reading? Let me see if I can describe it. So for the drawing of the two sides of the brain and where the corpus callosum is, there's a second or, I don't know, gap, break in the middle. What do you mean by a gap or a break? A hole in it? I guess. I don't know. That's what I'm asking. I'm not the... Okay, so I, so I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't read that paper. But the corpus callosum is sort of around the ventricles of the brain. Mm -hmm. So you might be talking about the third ventricle or one of the two lateral ventricles. Okay. So those are the only spaces that I know about in the middle of the brain. Right? The corpus callosum will not have holes in it, if that's what you're sort of getting so at. So a second or third or an extra break or... Um, like another ventricle or a gap in between? I don't know of any evidence of people having a fifth ventricle in the brain. That's okay. completely new to me. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about That's that. Uh, if you want to talk about the ventricles that hold cerebral spinal fluid, I could say that there are normal-sized, age-appropriate, normal-sized ventricles. Enlarged ventricles are a sign of disease. Mm -hmm. It happens in Alzheimer's disease, in um, chronic alcoholism, and MS. There are, there are hallmark diseases that are associated with enlarged cerebral ventricles. Okay. And what happens is when the ventricles become enlarged, um, your brain can't expand, so you end up losing brain tissue. So it's associated with less brain tissue around those circumventricular organs, uh, which is a hallmark, at least on the CAT scans, of brain pathology. But that's different than like psychopaths and psychopathology okay. in one of these um, antisocial personality disorders. So after the, after the show, you have to share with me that paper you're reading. Okay. I have no idea what it is. It's certainly not mainstream neuroscience. And so you wanted to talk about sort of psychopaths in comparison to, what did you want to compare them to? You wanted to compare them to sociopaths. Yeah. Because often those words are used interchangeably and so what then in your reading did you find out is different because they're not the same thing what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath so pretty much that psychopaths are born that way and more sociopaths it's a learned behavior 
Correct. And so, again, it's both of these things are characterized as antisocial personality disorders. Um, in fact, neither the word psychopath nor um, sociopath are, are in the DSM-5. It's sort of a diagnostic thing. And there's a debate over why didn't they name these things. And distinguishing them can be very, very difficult just by talking to people. And so one train of thought says, well, maybe they didn't put it in the DSM-5 because without the highfalutin anatomical tools to look at brain regions and brain anatomy, a psychologist or a psychiatrist can't tell the difference between these things yeah. because there's a lot of behavioral similarities between these two things. And in research labs, you can figure out like, you know, what is actual somebody's emotional reactivity, heart rate, blood pressure, the autonomic responses, or the size of their prefrontal cortex or other things. And so what you have is like primary sort of antisocial personality disorder, which would be psycho psychopaths, or you have this secondary kind of antisocial personality disorder, which is called the sociopath. And you nailed it. The sociopaths are people who learn to respond differently. They, again, they can be very, very manipulative, often very, very bright, um, often very, very cunning, but the, and they'll know what the right thing to say is. They know, like, to say, I love my mother, but they might not, <laughs> to take what exactly. the movies, feel it. they might not feel it, any emotional, and have no empathy with their mother, and not care about their siblings when they kill their mother, mm -hmm. and not be able to feel that, but they know the right thing to say. And again, if that's associated with somebody who's really bright, and again, bright, and for somebody who's very self-centered, that can be used to get what they want. And in some cases, again, that can lead to some success. Um, other cases, it might lead to being in jail. And can that lead back to, say, the reward system? Say they were smart enough to figure out once and they got a positive response out of it. They got what they wanted, so it just it continues go, it goes and spirals. It on, on and on. And, uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. but like I said, you'd, you'd have to meet these people, encounter them, and you know they're very good at lying. You know, they, they tell you what they want you to know. And if you read interviews of people who, you know, who've gone to prisons to talk to these people, mm -hmm. um, I was reading one interview of some professors who usually, as a way of training their graduate students, they send their graduate students into prisons to interview these people. And they said almost all the time the graduate students come out and say, these, you know, they don't show them the, the rap sheet. And this graduate students come out and say, these people are in jail. They didn't do anything. They're wrongly accused. And then they come out and show them the actual rap sheet. And the, and the graduates just get all upset because, no, they didn't tell me that. They didn't tell me this. The person was so, you know, was so convincing. Was so, yeah. You know, and, and, but, and remember, too, these are the people who have been caught doing bad things. Yeah. Not everybody's caught. I mean, I've certainly encountered people in my life who have lied and manipulated. And it's all about getting what they want mm -hmm. without caring about the feelings of others, without caring about social norms or what other people think. And it can be really goal-driven kinds of things. Is that what you were, is that so you were what you were getting at? Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they learn. Um, sometimes the sociopaths have trouble keeping jobs, you know, because they can be impulsive. They tend not to follow the rules. They have trouble keeping relationships going. Um, when the manipulation starts, um, one of the differences between psychopaths and sociopaths is sociopaths sometimes have emotional outbursts at greater extents. Again, it's an emotional processing kinds of thing that have these spontaneous things. And they tend to have like spontaneous crimes. 
they might get an idea and just do something or, or like crimes of passion well well crimes of passion or, or crimes of uh, opportunity let's call okay. that that don't involve like the planning the meticulous working out which is why they often get caught right and um prisons and stuff are full of people like these things so are, are we getting to are we are we discussing some of these yeah is this, is this, this is what you wanted when you suggested this topic right yes I mean, what else you have a lot of notes in front of you what else do you have inside there another thing i found interesting was they were talking about the different hormones and stuff that can sometimes play a role in like cortisol secretion and stuff like that okay so what did you find about or do you want to talk about cortisol if you'd like yeah. Let's talk, about, let's talk about cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone produced by the adrenal gland under the control of your pituitary. Your pituitary gets its marching orders from your hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, your hypothalamus was one of the areas of the brain that we, we indicated before. The hypothalamus releases a hormone into the hypothalamal hypophyseal portal system, <laughs> and that travels to the cells of the anterior pituitary, which release a hormone called ACTH, adrenocorticotropic hormone, which travels to the adrenal glands. The adrenal glands really two glands with in one structure, but one part of the adrenal gland will release this this hormone called cortisol, or corticosterone is the main glucocorticoid in animals. Cortisol is the main glucocorticoid in humans, and what that 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 hormonal pathway is activated in times of arousal, in times of stress. There's also a circadian rhythm in it, so it's not a stress hormone. There are times where your body normally has low cortisol levels. There's usually an early morning rise in cortisol, but stress-related activation of that pathway is way and above beyond what the circadian rhythm would be. Yeah. So when we talked about hormonal reactivity being diminished in people with these, you know, um, uh, psychopathological tendencies reduced cortisol responses to a stressor or a movie or something emotional would be a characteristic of one of those things and ties into the low heart rate and the low heart rate exactly low autonomic function we can follow right that up so we'll be right back with more healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements you're listening to health 411 on 107.7 the bronc and 107.7 the knowledge a day keeps a doctor away right university's health studies institute presents health 411 and back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077TheBronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. We're in the studio talking about emotional processing in the nervous system with an emphasis on socio and psychopathology. And Diamond was talking right at the end of the last segment a little bit about the neuroendocrine and the cortisol responses to potentially emotional stimuli being reduced in people who are psychopaths and that is associated with the low neuroendocrine low autonomic arousal low heart rate low little increase in blood pressure in potentially very emotional responses mm -hmm. and as diamond was saying that's sometimes portrayed in movies as like those cold-blooded killers you know yeah, somebody there's who can, a yeah. <laughs> a huge part of say silence of the lambs where they deal with hannibal lecter mm -hmm. He does all of his kills or whatever, and his heart rate yeah, doesn't he, he go over 70 or something. Some number like yeah. that, yeah. And that would be sort of a, a movie portrayal of mm -hmm. somebody who 
response to those sort of things. Horrific things are happening mm -hmm. and there's no emotional response. And that's the case of somebody who was very, very bright, doing these yes. things uh, but again it's fictional this, yes. is, this, is, this is a make-believe thing yeah. but it's based on sort of this idea mm -hmm. that a human cannot feel empathy and not care and not feel the pain or the suffering of a victim yeah and something I was trying to figure out or look into if there was any type of genetic predisposition to it and there's not much research and things aren't really yeah. known yet and, and that's that's an important thing because the way our brains pu are put together um, in many regards are depend or at least influenced by our genes yes um, but we have as humans relatively complex nervous systems mm -hmm. and what the science shows is animals that have very simple nervous systems have a very very high component of the genes dictating how the nervous system is put together as nervous systems get more and more complex as you go from I don't know fruit flies up to humans the environment starts to play a greater and greater role in how the nervous system is put together that's number one so if you put humans at the highest end of the nervous system complexity scale we have relative to the genetic component of how our brains are put together a very very large aspect of the environment shaping how we are and there's certainly an interplay between those two the modern field of epigenetics mm -hmm. is a study of how environment right that is brought into the nervous system, how the environment can shape what genes are turned on and turned so off. So like nature versus nurture and stuff like that. that. Is, that's like that's like 1960s speak yeah. of the nature versus nurture thing. The modern way of looking at it is epigenetics. Okay. Right. Because that's the term that you hear all the time. Yeah. That that that's sort of that's that, that's old think. Okay. Right. But there, but it's it's certainly an interplay between the two. It's not one or the other. It's more genetic in simple organisms, less genetic in more complex organisms. And let me just as a neuroscientist. Let me just follow that up. There is no single human behavior related to one gene, right? Our nervous systems are, are built with multiple redundancies and multiple things. And unlike, you know, you can't have a, a, a gene for intelligence or a gene for this, any specific behavior. There's no gene for throwing a curveball, you know, or a gene <laughs> for kicking a soccer ball or you know, whatever you, whatever behavior you pick, there's no gene related. What we're building is a nervous system that has the capabilities to respond to its environment and sort of adapt to that and so there probably is a genetic component of building a nervous system that has low emotional reactivity a smaller prefrontal cortex um, and probably other things related to the limbic system but it's not one gene one behavior kind of stuff okay cool what else you got there in your pile of notes diamond they were also talking about moving into the future to begin to study children and how early on the development becomes but then i don't know the process of diagnosing a psychopath and where it turns from having some psychopathetic traits into your like, yeah. so diagnosed what, what a psychopath. That, that the constellation of human behaviors go from being just normal to abnormal to being pathological to, yeah. to being bad. And again, the way that it is diagnosed is by our behaviors. Some of these antisocial personality disorders, um, according to the DSM-5, cannot be diagnosed in people until you're over 18. Mm -hmm. Other ones start to show behavioral traits, um, like in teenagers, 15 or so. But it would take like ongoing treatment to sort of know that. Like some of the uh, sociopaths are, which are some of the things that can be 
looked at earlier than like 18 or let's say adulthood. Um, some of these, these children are these people who are treated early for things like chronic lying. You know, because uh, they learn how to lie to try to get what they want along the way. Like yes. I said, it becomes reinforced. So they become really, really good at it. And remember, those graduate students, somebody with that can be very, very convincing. Mm -hmm. You know, they can lie, they lie, they look, you know, and they, you believe them if you don't know their history and follow them over time. So diagnosing these things can be very, very complicated, which is sort of why the DSM probably groups a lot of these things together. And, and just other things under that sort of heading are things like dissocial personality disorder, narcissism, things like that. They're, they're all sort of related, but again, they're, they're, they're sort of normal bell-shaped curves of behavior. And at what point does it become pathological? Well, certainly if you are one of these, you know, psychopaths and you're, you know, in a field, if you're a politician and you have some of these tendencies, you might be very, very successful. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually an article um, that was published a few years ago while Obama was president, and it looked at, it, I mean, it's a sort of looking back in time, but saying how many of U.S. presidents were psychopaths, because some of the things that they had to do, um, they sort of... You know, they were sort of judging them on how, like, how did you respond? Mm -hmm. You know, certainly somebody, like, you might say um, Abraham Lincoln probably wasn't because he probably had fits of depression that were probably related to the men that he was sending into battle who were dying. Yeah. You know, and then there's other people who could send people into battle who would die and just didn't care, <laughs> you know? Um, and you could take that any way you want. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, would you say that people that are like psychopaths or sociopaths, do they not experience things like depression or intense, like depressed states? Do you think? Uh, that, can you have a depressed psychopath? You probably could. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, you might have to ask yourself, what, what is the cause of that? Like, um, um, and the, the, I guess the, that's an excellent question. I'd have to do some research on that. Somebody probably has done some stuff on that. I didn't look at that. That would be an interesting question because certainly I mean, depression is not one thing. There are different kinds of depression and there's different kinds of brain states associated with that. Um, like uh, PTSD is a kind of depression that mean that could be that's sort of a for, you know inability to forget some horrific thing um i can imagine a psychopath having ptsd and then wanting revenge and uh, plotting it out yeah. uh but would somebody with who is psychopathical tendencies get depressed because uh, their mother died probably not because that's one of the hallmarks of not doing that or being depressed because you killed your best friend or something <laughs> like that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, or your cat died. Probably not. And there's, I mean, there's also like seasonal affective disorder, which is a completely different kind of, um, of depression. That's, but that's an excellent question. Cool. You guys are laughing at me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I sort of want to point out, too, that there's that because some of these uh, behavioral traits are now being understood at the neurobiological level, the neuroanatomical level, um, as we move forward in time, um, our system of law 
has has an understanding in it. It's one reason we have laws for children and laws for adults that are different. Mm-hmm. We have this thing called mens rea that if you don't have an understanding of what you do, it's you're not deemed by guilt, you know, guilty. But I mean, um, not guilty by reason of insanity, which says you basically did the crime, but you're not responsible for it because you didn't understand what you were doing is bad. I can imagine in this sort of like idea of neural law as we move forward, as more neuroanatomical things are discovered, um, it becoming more and more of an issue. It's like, yeah, you're guilty of doing the crime, but if you didn't have any emotional connection to what you were doing, um, maybe you're not guilty, or maybe you won't be put to death. Maybe we'll just put you in jail for the rest of your life. There's a lot of things like that, and I, I read an analogy that I just want to bring up that I thought was very interesting, if, is if you had somebody who was deaf, and, and they have a whatever whatever reason they're they're deaf they can't hear if they're near a burning building and there's a child in that building screaming get me out get me out you wouldn't hold that deaf that deaf person responsible for not going into the building to try to save the child because mm-hmm. they couldn't hear it what would happen in this case of you have these people who don't have emotional responses and don't care who in that same sort of thing, in that same sort of scenario, would you hold that person responsible for not caring enough to go help somebody or to, under certain conditions? Hmm. You might say, is that person, you know, not guilty by reason of insanity? And there's probably aspects of neural law, and I'm sure there are lawyers out there who are promoting this, you know, my client couldn't help him or herself, didn't understand, didn't feel the normal emotional remorse or empathy or couldn't connect with. And that's why, you know, they let this happen. I can certainly see that um, going forward in legal, um, you know, because they had no intent. They had no culpability for understanding the suffering of others. And um, I'm sure there are probably some, uh, you know, I would call unethical defense attorneys who, <laughs> who, who might go down that um, kind of thing. Um, but it's certainly so a behavioral trait related to brain anatomy. And, and yet and we have to think about that as we move forward as a, as a culture. Cool. We, real quick time. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, I about think that's pretty much covered answered everything. your questions? Yeah. Cool. Thank you. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has helped inform you about emotional processing in the human nervous system. If you have questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Ryder University, please email us at hsi at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Rider University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under academics and academic programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.